first, let me say welcome to those of you who are watching either by television or online around the world. My name is Tim, and this is the Weekend at Waters Church. Everybody here, can we welcome in those who are watching by video? Let them know, hello, we love you, thank God. You took some time to do this today. We're in a series of messages called Fake News, and it's a study in the book of Colossians, a church in the first century that Paul was addressing, the Apostle Paul was addressing, and a church that was in many ways under attack by fake news or fake philosophies, philosophies that did not lead to life. And so we are getting down to business here in part six. The title of the message is The House That Jesus Builds. The House That Jesus Builds. Who is building your house? And hopefully it is Jesus. And so uh, I got this message title from the phrase about Yankee Stadium that they used to say about Yankee Stadium. The house that who? Ruth built, right? Babe Ruth. And uh, that stadium has since been demolished. But nonetheless, the reason why that stadium existed, many people, many historians, baseball historians said, was because of the Yankees' deal for Babe Ruth uh, way back in 1918 from the Red Sox. And it went down as one of sports history's greatest mistakes. And uh, the Yankees, who were not that great of a team up until that point, the Boston Red Sox had won five world championships up until 1918, and then, and then they swapped Babe Ruth, and then the rest is history, and the Yankees became the greatest baseball team in history. But the historians tell us that his signing alone uh, generated the revenue and the interest in the New York Yankees to the effect that they were able to finance and purchase the stadium. And so in many respects, it became the house that Ruth built. And I only bring that up in Red Sox country <laughs> to make this point. That's the power of a transformational person. Uh, there are certain people in the world that can just change the tenor of an organization just by joining it. There are certain people with certain abilities and certain attitudes and personalities that when they enter the room, everything changes. Some people just have that power. They just have that sway. And do you know who has that sway more than anyone? Jesus. When Jesus enters your home, a transformation is supposed to happen. And Jesus is not really interested in just getting you to heaven and just helping you to be happy here on Sunday morning. Jesus is interested in you seeing your life change. And it starts at home. So in Colossians chapter 3, we talked about this last week. Chris talked about this. We enter at Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 into the now what of this little short four-chapter book in the New Testament. The first two chapters, all about Jesus. What has Jesus done for you? What has Jesus accomplished for you? How he has saved you? Uh, he has secured for you an eternal redemption, an eternal life. He's got a home in heaven for you. He's washed away your sins from you. This is all the wonderful things that Jesus has done for you. That's the first two chapters of Colossians. But the second two chapters of Colossians are, now that that's true for you, here's what you should do with it. And so in verse one, what does he say? He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand side of God. 
Uh, and then he says, set your heart on things above and not on things that are below here on earth. And so what you have to understand, Christian, is that Jesus comes to secure for you a home in heaven, but do not let your faith stop there. In other words, there are some Christians, I call them heaven-minded Christians, heaven-centered Christians, and what I mean by that is they're just happy that Jesus is getting them to heaven. And as true as that is, that's not the end of the story for Christians. No, Christians, we are people who are absolutely secured of an eternity in heaven, but it should affect our reality here on earth. In other words, there are some Christians that have their minds so much on heaven, they don't care about what happens on earth, and that must never be. You've heard the phrase that they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. And so there are some people that just think, well, I'm just passing through. This life doesn't matter. Nobody matters. I'm just going to heaven. Thank you, Jesus. You're my get out of hell free card. Thank you, Jesus. And that's not where we stop with our faith. And so a little bit later in the passage, and, and oh, I want you to write this down. Uh, being a Christian is more, about getting, more than about getting to heaven. More than about getting to heaven. And so as much as that's true for you, it's got to touch the ground and where you live your faith in Christ and what he has done for you. Uh, a little bit further on in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul talks about this. That he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Okay, so he takes it down from heaven and into what I call here in verse 16, the Sunday morning experience. Like this verse 16, Sunday morning terms. Word of Christ, what am I going to teach you today? The word of Christ. What am I doing today? Teaching and admonishing you with wisdom from God. What did we do just a little bit ago? We sang songs, we sang hymns, we sang spiritual songs, and hopefully we're thankful that we're at Waters Church. And for some Christians, they're not just heavenly minded, but here's where they stop in their faith. They're just what I call Sunday minded Christians. In other words, they're a different person from Monday to Saturday, and then Sunday rolls around and suddenly they turn on the Christianity. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the people that have been screaming all the way to church at their kids in the car, threatening divorce with their wife in the car. They're yelling and screaming and fighting and hurting each other. And then they cross the threshold of the Waters Church doors and they walk in and they're like, amen, brother. Good to see you. God bless you. I'm so glad that you're here. Hallelujah. God is good all the time. Praise Jesus. And there are some Christians that are in love. Listen to this very closely here. There are some Christians that are in love. Like there are some Christians that are in love with the idea of going to heaven only. There are some Christians that are in love with going to church only. And so they would judge their Christian experience by how good the preaching was and how good the song was and how good the service was. And they'll walk out of the church and say, wow, that was an amazing experience. But they don't let the experience translate into a changed life that affects the people with whom they do life all through the week with. Let not our Christianity stay there either. Write this down if you're taking notes. Being a Christian is about more than getting to church. So it's about more than getting to heaven. It's about more than coming to church. And so here's what Paul's going to do in, first, in Colossians 3.18. He's going to touch the home. He's going to say, this is, this is what it's about, friend. Let it never be said about the people at Waters Church. All they care about is going to heaven when they die. Or all they care about is having good church services. No. We care about how you're doing life at home. We care about what Jesus has done for you being, being transmitted through you to those who know you the most. 
That's where Christianity, that's where the rubber hits the road in Christianity, amen? And so then the little connector verse in verse 17, took, take a look at this verse in your notes, and whatever you do, and if you're taking this, underline, circle, whatever. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. In other words, more than just go to church. More than just be in a small group. More than just read your Bible and pray. In everything. In other words, Christian, there is nothing in your life that is not sacred to God. It is not as if God is here with us now and then we walk out the door and we're on our own. As if Jesus hangs out at this building all week and just waits for us to show up. I can't wait till Sunday. I'm so bored. <laughs> Trust me, I'm in the building all week. It is boring. You take it with you. There is nothing that you're involved in that does not become sacred because you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit and set apart for God's purposes in that thing. Whatever you do. Do, and then just in case you thought he may have left out something, do what? Do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks in everything? Yes, everything. To God, the Father, through him. So now he's going to get personal in verse 18. And we're going to read that portion of scripture together. Let's stand, if you will. Verse 18 begins with every woman's favorite Bible verse. Let's read. <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. <laughs> husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever, there it is again. From verse 17 now to verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And with our God, there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you will guide my words in these next few moments. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. May our hearts receive them, and may we see Jesus in him only, and in his mighty name we pray, and everybody here said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. So it is passages like this where non-Christians tend to get a little upset with the Bible, because what I just read challenges our modern sensibilities, Amen. Like, Pastor, I, you know, I love your church. It's cool. I mean, the lights, the smoke, and you're not dressed like one of those weird religious guys in other churches, I understand. But the whole thing about wives submitting and all that stuff, see, this is where, this is where I start to have a problem with Christianity. And let me, just, let me just give some marginal boundaries for us today before I go any further, okay? If you're not a Christian, I got two things to say about you. One, one, number one, number one, I'm so glad you're here. You are welcome into our church, even if you're not a Christian. Come on in. 
We want you to explore Christianity. We want you to hear what the Bible has to say, and then we want you to make a decision for yourself. We hope you feel at home. We hope you enjoy the free coffee, and we hope you enjoy your week. But the second thing that I want to say to non-Christians today who have a problem with this passage that we just read is here's, here's some good news for you. Paul's not talking to you. He's talking to Christians. He, he's, he's not, by the way, he's also not enacting a law that we should legislate. He's talking to Christians in their homes. This is what your homes should look like as Christians. So if you're not a Christian, I've got nothing to say about how you do your home. I'm talking to Christians. So if you're not a Christian, welcome. We're glad you're here. You get a chance to listen in on house talk for Christians. And I think... But, but here's the thing I want to qualify with that with, is that if you actually did these things, I also believe it will go well for you. Because I think that the word of God works for everybody. So anyway, there are three relationships that, G, that Paul addresses in this passage. Uh, I want you to note them. Husbands and wives, verses 18 and 19. Fathers and children, verses 20 and 21. And then masters and servants. And in the ancient world, it was bond servants and slaves. Um, but today, the modern equivalent is employees and employers. Because in the ancient world in Rome, half the population were slaves. It was an economic system. A lot of people have a problem with the Bible. Why doesn't, it tell, why doesn't he tell the slave masters to let their slaves go free? Okay, uh, I've talked about this in other messages. I'll just briefly talk about it here. Uh, Slavery in the ancient world was not like slavery in this world that we know about and study in our history books about America. It was not chattel slavery. It was not ethnic slavery. Um, and slave trading is outlawed in the scriptures in 1 Timothy chapter 1. All that being said, it was not a healthy institution, and it has been radically changed and altered and shaped and brought about to a much better situation with employees and working environments today, in large part due to the work of many Christians throughout history, and we should be thankful for their contribution to the working environment that we enjoy today. But for the sake of argument, we're talking there about bosses, and workers. So let me just say this about these three relationships. These are the three relationships that are going to be the hardest for all of us, right? Your three most difficult relationships will be the one with your spouse, the one with your kids or your parents, and the one with the people you work with or work for. Do you know why they're so hard? Because these are the people that you actually spend time with. <laughs> And it is very easy to love people that you have nothing to do with. I always get a kick out of these celebrities. They get an award. They go up and they go to the podium and they, and they say, thank you for this award. And then they tell their audience, oh, audience, I love you all. No, you don't. You don't know us. If you knew us, you would not love us. Trust me. The people that you're going to do the most life with, that's where the rubber hits the road, Christian. How you treat your spouse, how you treat your children, how you treat your parents, how you treat those you work with. This is what Christ came to change. 
And I love the fact that Paul goes right to the home. He doesn't go to the business halls. He doesn't go to the political halls. He doesn't go to the governmental halls with the word of Christ. He goes where it really matters, and it really matters in your home. Listen to me very carefully, Waters Church. If change is going to come to the United States of America, it's not going to come through the halls of Washington, D.C. It's going to come through the homes of those who have been bought by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it's going to happen. Now, in those three relationship structures, husbands, wives, parents, children, boss, and employees, there are two kinds of people. There are those in authority, husbands, fathers, employees, employers, I'm sorry, and then there are those under authority, wives, children, employees. And I want you to notice something else about this passage before we move on. Paul, in each relationship couplet, speaks first to the people under authority. And what he's doing there, by addressing wives first and children first and employees first, is he's actually challenging the social assumptions of the day. This is an ancient letter from the ancient world, the book of Colossians. And so for him to even address bondservants and children and wives in the letter was profoundly groundbreaking for the social structures of that day. Are you following me? Most letters, you never addressed these kinds of people because they were considered chattel, property. Paul boldly challenges social norms of his day and elevates the status of those under authority and addresses them personally in this letter because Christianity has become the great equalizer providing dignity and worth to every human being regardless of status. And we have to remember that. But there's a challenge that some of us have got to get used to, and I don't think we're getting used to it because our culture screams at us the opposite direction. There are differences in society. There are positions. There are structures of authority. And no, friend, all things are not equal. And they never will be until Jesus comes. I want you to write this down and then I'm going to explain it so don't get triggered. Equality is a myth. And the sooner I accept it, the sooner I can get on with the life that God gave me, make the most of the life God gave me. Now, let me preface my comments by qualifying this, this statement that I just made. I am not talking about your dignity and value. The scriptures completely affirm from Genesis 1 all the way through the scriptures that all humans are equal in value and worth before our Father in heaven and therefore should be considered equal in value and worth by those who serve the Father in heaven. But there are social structures and there are embedded inequities in society that we can do little about and are not going away anytime soon. And what we live in is in a culture where everybody is screaming, screaming constantly about their rights instead of taking responsibility for their lives. And a culture where everybody's arguing about what they think they deserve is not a happy culture. 
is not, a, is not a loving, caring culture. It is a culture where we make demands on everybody to recognize ourselves as the center of our reality and therefore nothing else matters except how I feel about how you're treating me. Let the world treat people like that. That must never be the way God's people act in the world so that the world can see there's a group of people that believe they're valuable before God and therefore what people say about them does not ultimately determine who they are. I'll let you swallow that because your delayed clap indicates you are still trying to process what I just said. In fact, I said so much, I'm still trying to process what I just said, but stay with me for a moment. There are some things that you can do nothing about concerning equality. There are some things. So let me just, let me just unpack some of them because what I'm about to say will make sense. For instance, you did not get to choose the family to whom you were born. You didn't. Thank you, brother. <laughs> and I am looking at a bunch of lucky people today. You could have been born in North Korea. You could have been born in Syria. All you need to do, Americans, to get over this little what about me mentality in this country is spend about 48 hours in any other country. I go to other countries. I've been to four foreign countries. Every time I get off the plane, I do two things. I kiss the ground and I go to Dunkin' Donuts for a nice coffee. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you the truth. There is no country like this country. And with all the whining that I see on the news and on social media, I think we all need to just go overseas just for 48 hours, everybody. And so you didn't get to choose though. You got lucky. You got lucky there. Oh, but I was born to a poor, a poor family in America is better off than a rich family in almost any other country. You gotta understand, you didn't choose that. Is it fair? Is it equal? No. Get over it and move on with the life God wants for you. So number two, you did not get to choose your biological sex. Now I know. We live in a country, we live in an age where we can change the instruments. <laughs> if you pay enough money. Um, but you can't change the chromosomes. Can't. Science will back me up on that. So you might not like that you are a wife or, 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 your, or your husband's not fair to you or, or, or there's a patriarchy or, or whatever. You might not like that. You can either moan about it or expect God to work in your favor regardless of it and take advantage of what God can do for you in that situation. Let the church not reflect the moaning and groaning and bickering of the culture. Let us provide a different narrative of people who trust a father in heaven who knows what is best for his children. You did not get to choose your skin color. You did not get to choose your facial features. You didn't get to choose whether you would struggle with pimples or obesity. You, you didn't get to choose who you worked with when you took the job. You may not even have had a choice over the job. It was just the only job was available. That's what you got. Is it fair? No. Is it equal? No. 
And you can either obsess about the inequality or you can move forward with the God-given opportunities in that position he has placed you in. So I'm trying to say that there is one thing that the world can never take away from you. And I get this from a Jew by the name of Viktor Frankl, not a Christian. He wrote a book, Man's Search for Meaning. He survived the Jewish Holocaust, uh, the, the, the Holocaust. He survived the Holocaust. And he came out having everything taken away from him by the Nazis except for one thing. And he said, this is the one thing that no one can ever take away from you. How you choose to respond to what happens to you. A wise man once said, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% about how you react. So in a world that's yelling and screaming about fairness and rights and inequalities and all that stuff, Christian, here's your opportunity. Do what God asks you to do where you are and trust him with the results. I'm not saying that the church shouldn't work for justice. Of course we should. For heaven's sakes, read the book of Amos. But I am saying that there are always going to be embedded inequalities in the world, and we are not the people who fuss and fight. We are the people who move forward in faith. You didn't get to choose whether you were good at math or whether you were good at English or whether you were good at neither. <laughs> I know that talents can be developed, but let's be honest about that. There is even inequality in how fast certain people can develop talents. Some people, it comes to them quickly. Some people, it takes years. And even those years do not actually produce the same results as those people to whom it comes quickly. My point is, get over the inequalities. Get over these things. Don't let them shape an attitude of entitlement and an attitude of woe is me to the effect that you just sit there and complain instead of moving on in your life. So Paul is going to talk first to those under authority, and I'm going to talk to those first under authority because there are structures these inevitable structures in the human experience that we have got to know how to approach and handle for our own good. And by the way, when Paul addresses those under authority first, he's actually saying something profound. Listen to me very carefully. He's saying, you who think you have no power because you're under the authority of others actually have the power to start shaping that reality. So number one, and I only have two points. And it doesn't mean I'm gonna be any shorter than I usually am. <laughs> Number one though, to those under authority, Paul says, it's not about where you are, but how you handle where you are. It's not about how you, where you are. It's about how you handle it. So he first addresses wives, and he says, wives, submit to your husbands. And um, again, I know this is every lady's life verse. Um, <laughs> And I know that the word submission has been used to dominate and mistreat women and has been um, backed up by many preachers before me, sadly. A couple of things about this passage. First, ladies, wives, it is written to you. It is not written to your husbands. So husbands, you do not have the right to come to the elders at Waters Church and say, you see verse 18 here? My wife's not doing it. Help me. Now, uh, for those of you who are fans of Greek, and I'm sure there's not many of you, the word submit here is in the middle voice of the Greek language, which means that it is voluntary. It is not to be um, legislated. 
Wives, voluntarily submit to the authority of your husband. Someone's got to be in charge of your home in the scriptures. All through the New Testament, it is the husband. You may not like it. God didn't ask you if you liked it. This is how he has established the home. And so you submit to your husbands. And secondly, I want you to make sure that you understand that the word submit does not in any way infer inferiority. It is, it is the word, submit here, is the word that is used of Jesus when he submitted himself to his parents. He submitted himself to the Father's plan to go to the cross, and even when he was moments from the cross, he submitted himself to Pilate and the authorities who placed him on that cross. You remember in John, he says to Pilate's face, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from heaven. And so wives... The shape of your home, this is so cool, starts with you. He doesn't approach your husband's first. He says, wives first. You have a chance here to shape the tenor and the culture of your house. And you have the power to shape your husband, but not through the things you think will shape him. Through the things that God has done for you in Christ Jesus and has established for you. Because God does not work according to human wisdom, but heavenly wisdom. And I, I think that there are wives that are still struggling with So let me just go to another passage in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 3. When Paul says, when Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if, even if what, Peter? Even if some of them aren't Christians... What? Yes. Even if they're not Christians, they don't obey the word. They may be one, underline the next three words, ladies, without a word, by the conduct of their wives. Some of you just caught that. <laughs> okay. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do you understand what Peter is saying here? Is profound. He's saying, ladies, the soul of your husband can be shaped by your submission. Now, I get it. It doesn't sound right. That doesn't make sense. That, what makes far more sense is, surely if I nag him to death, he will finally become the man that God has determined, God and I have agreed that he should be. <laughs> Friends, God never asks us to do what comes naturally. He asks us to do what he empowers supernaturally to change a world that is hopelessly lost in what comes naturally. You can shape your husband through means that make no sense to you but make perfect sense to God because he is the true husband of our hearts. So try it your way. Listen, I'm not going to police you in this. I'm not coming over your house. How you doing with that submission thing? <laughs> it's up to you. This is your show. You can ignore me and do it your way and see what happens. Or you can try God's. My point is, it's not about your position. It's about how you handle it. Children, he says. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Oh, children, uh, you have to understand, and I know we don't have under 10-year-old kids in this room, but for those over 10, because now you're getting to that point where you're starting to wonder if dad and mom know what they're talking about. They do. 
uh, and you need to trust them. They have more life experience than you. You know, you grow up, you think your parents can do anything until the age of 12, and then you think they're complete morons until the age of 30, <laughs> and then you realize they were brilliant. Now, of course, if you have decent parents, if your parents are abusing you, and by the way, going back to the wives, if you're getting abused, it's not, it's not, it's not, um, it is not uh, absolute submission and obedience here. Oh, he's beating me, but the Bible tells me to submit. No. That's why you have a church with elders. That's why you have a government with the sword to punish the wrongdoer. You can come to us. You can tell us. We will help you. That's not what we're talking about here. Never think that. But children obey. And, and because you're becoming more like Christ. What did Christ do? Even when his parents didn't understand who he was, he submitted to them. He's 12 years old. He's in the temple. They go home. They leave him in the temple. I don't know how that happens, but they do. They come back three days later. They find him sitting with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and he's having a good old chat about theology. And they're like, what are you doing here? He goes, I'm with my dad. What are you talking about? And they're like, what is this kid all about? And he goes home and obeys them as a good son. Children, your parents may not understand you, in the words of the great theologian Will Smith, the Fresh Prince. But, but Jesus knows where you are. And he's been there. And he was an obedient son. And it will go well with you. Employees, he says. Bond servants obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye services, people pleasers. In other words, don't play games at work. Don't be one of those people who flip the switch. The boss isn't here. We can do what we want. Oh, the boss is here. Let's, let's get busy. Don't do that. Because even if they're not watching, your father's watching. And he's going to reward good service. There's a really cool verse in Job. I don't remember where it is, but it says that there's things that God creates of beauty that man has never seen. In other words, God takes pleasure in creating beauty even when no one is there to appreciate it. We are made in the image of God. We should be doing beauty wherever we are, no matter what people say about it or even if they appreciate it. Why? Because that's what our Father does. He's watching you. Don't, don't be one of those people. For this By the way, uh, this is the technological age. Employees, listen, there are cameras everywhere. <laughs> there are internet filters everywhere. Don't be foolish. So, some people don't take their job seriously. They don't do all their kind. They don't work hard, and then they wonder why they never get ahead. They complain. They, they moan about their boss. Well, my boss, and this and that, and all these things happen. You can either spend your life complaining about what everybody else has done to you, or you can do the best that you can with where you are right now and trust that God will see it and God will reward you. And you say, well, what if he doesn't reward me in this life? We have the next one coming. And it's a heck of a lot longer than this one. I think about Joseph. Joseph, who was honorable in his father's house, and it only ended, in, ended him up in slavery, sold into slavery by his own brothers. 
And then in slavery, he could have moaned, he could have complained, he could have argued, but he doesn't. He does what is right in slavery. And God uh, doesn't reward him there either. He gets falsely accused of rape. And then he goes to prison for doing what was right. And he could have moaned and he could have argued and could have complained, but he doesn't. He does what is right. And at the right moment, God takes that boy from the prison and puts him in the palace. Because God was watching even when everybody over his life was harming him. You, you either live like God is all-powerful or you complain like he's not. Those are the people under authority. Number two, those in authority, listen to me very carefully because I, I embody the next three kinds of people. Your authority and power are to be leveraged, point two. Your authority and your power are to be leveraged for the benefit of those under your authority and power. So I embody all three. I am a husband, I am a um, father, and I am an employer. So these next three are for me and for those of you like me and even women who are bosses and managers among us. Um, your power cannot go to your head. This is where society breaks down. Because God takes authority seriously. He is the God of all authority. And he leverages his authority. Listen, he leverages his authority for the benefit of those under his authority. Jesus is the true husband who laid down his life for his wife, the church. He used his authority to lay down his life and to take it up again for the benefit of who? You. So husbands, let me talk to you for a moment. Love your wives. And do not be harsh with them. By the way, everybody who says that the Bible needs to be updated and we need to eliminate some verses and stick to some verses, I always get a kick out of how they want to eliminate wives submit, but they're perfectly happy keeping husbands love your wives. We don't get to pick and choose what God's word says. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, I had this thought about this passage, and it was the first time I ever thought about this verse. But listen to me. This has got to be the least romantic verse in the entire Bible. <laughs> Think about it. Wives, I know you want your husbands to love you. Yes. But how many of you kind of have this thought now with me? Do I really only want him to love me because God told him to? Isn't it far more romantic if he loves me because I'm me? It's romantic, it's just not godly. It's just not scriptural. And love in the ancient world, in a marriage, was optional. You got lucky if you were loved in the ancient world in a marriage. In America, it's almost like if love isn't there, we can't be married anymore. What have we done? We have made love God. So this is what we say, this is what our culture says, this is what you hear, this is what you hear. I heard it on a movie last night. I, I, this is all over the place. Well. We're just not in love anymore. And wouldn't you know, I found this 25-year-old bimbo. And I fell hopelessly in love with her. What a load of crap. And if, if there is anything that scratches that selfish itch in our hearts, it is that nonsense. You don't fall in love. And you don't fall out of love. You choose to love. 
Write this down if you're taking notes. Love is not God. Husbands, love your wives regardless of how you feel about them. And wives, I have a secret. I'm a husband, so I know. Let me just let you in on a little secret. Sometimes you're not easy to love. <laughs> so you want God to command your husband to do this. <laughs> I'm just telling you, like my wife loves to say, um, love is blind, but marriage is an eye opener. It'll heal you. <laughs> Don't make love your God. That's what the world does. Love is not God. God is love. And, and listen, we do not judge someone's, we do not, we do not judge um, God by our idea of love. He defines love. And in Romans chapter 5, it says this, that God demonstrated his own love toward us by sending his son to die for us while we were his enemies. You want to know what love looks like? That's what it looks like when you lay down your life for people who hate you. This is what's going to hold your house together, friend. I uh, found a, a book, it was about the four kinds of marriages, um, traditional, romantic, and I can't remember the other two, but the romantic uh, marriages are the ones of the people who fall hopelessly in love and make the decision to marry because they're, they're infatuated with each other. And they found out that on average, only 15% of those marriages can actually maintain that love affair for the rest of their lives. So that means that even if you fall hopelessly in love with the person that you're going to marry, there's an 85% chance that you will not feel that way about each other later. Happy Sunday. Write this down if you're taking notes. When we mystify love, we lose our morals. When we mystify love, oh, it's the all-powerful force. I can't help obeying. I can't help obeying. No, you lose your mind. <laughs> so there was, a, there was a study done about Americans. Um, this is a shocking study, but the trajectory of Americans is now more Americans than ever would sooner save their beloved pet from drowning than a complete stranger from drowning. Do you, know what that, do you know what that is? That's letting love call the shots, the emotional love thing call the shots in your life. And you've lost your mind. Because anybody who's, who has a brain knows that a person is worth more than any pet. Amen. But we let love call, no, we don't let love call the shots. We let God call the shots and God says, I want you to love her when she's hard to love. I want you to serve her when she's hard to serve. And, and you can either do it your way or you can do it my way and see how it goes. Thank you, ma'am, for clapping so hard. Amen. Okay. No. <laughs> Actually, it was a husband. Praise God. Uh, parents, verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You know, my whole life, I never understood fathers, do not provoke your children until I became a father. <laughs> and my wife has to get on me about this because there is that tendency to just kind of like needle them a little bit because of all the grief they give you. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just being honest. I am a flawed man. <laughs> Do not provoke. And, and here's what I thought about. You, you've got to discipline your children without crushing their spirits. And I love what James Dobson used to say. He said, break the will. Don't break their spirit. And so parents, firstly, you have authority. The sign of the end times that 
that children will be disobedient to parents. That's the sign that Jesus is coming soon. We are living in a culture where parents are derided and scoffed to the celebration of adoring fans. Not in the church. In the church, we uphold the values of parental authority. But it is restrained in the scriptures. Do not provoke them. Do not discourage them. There are two ways to discourage your children. Are you ready? Number one, no rules. Number two, impossible rules. You can't do it. you got to stay balanced here. This is why you need a small group. You need to talk about it with other parents. This is why you need the scriptures to guide you. The, the scriptures in Proverbs talk about the rod of discipline, the rod of discipline, the rod of discipline. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. That's in Proverbs, right? A lot of people think that means take the rod and discipline your child. <laughs> That's not what it means. The rod was a shepherd's staff for measuring out the flocks in a trade deal. What the scripture is saying is the right measurement of discipline will drive folly out of your child's heart. You've got, to, you've got to measure out discipline. They actually did a study about children at a playground, and they put children in a playground with a border fence, and they found out that the children went all the way around in all the areas of the playground, and then they took the fence away, and they put the children back in, and all the children huddled close together in the middle of the playground and wouldn't venture out. And they prove the reality is, is that children need definitive boundaries in order to be as expressive as they should be. And to eliminate boundaries actually, actually causes frustration and fear. That's how you need to be with your, your children. You have the authority. You have the right. And if you have a 25-year-old who still depends on you, he is still your child. <laughs> when he pays his own bills and pays you rent... Then he can do what he wants. <laughs> He's got a 25-year-old at home. Okay. <laughs> so, what I'm trying to say is you do have authority. But use it to encourage. Draw the boundaries. Make it clear. Sleepovers. Watch out for this stuff. This is how all the sexual abuse starts happening. Watch out for this stuff. Sleepovers here. Sleepovers there. No, no, no. Check. My parent, my kids don't just go sleep over anybody's house. Absolutely not. I have to guard the purity of my children. So employers, finally, he says in verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. By the way, the ones that get the little, little qualifier there, Jesus is up, is up, is up in heaven watching you, <laughs> is the master's. And so I thought about, like, there are some here, you're business owners, and thank God that you're here, you are in you are integral to a free society. Thank you for providing jobs for people and doing what you do. But listen, do not let power go to your head. Do not, do not treat your employees like slaves, slave labor, so that you can pad your pockets at their, at their expense. That's why we have arguments for socialism today. That's why. Because it has, the income inequality gap has become crazy. All right, so Christians, I can't say anything to non-Christians. I'm sorry, I wish I could. I'm not running for office, I'm a pastor. But Christians, if you run a business, you pay your employees a living wage, a wage that's fair. They should not be struggling, scraping by to survive to work for you. This is your opportunity, friends, to provide a narrative 
that tells the world there's a better way to do life, and it's grounded in Christ. So the last thing that I had to say is a very simple question. What if we did this stuff? (laughs) What if we let the realities of heaven invade more than Sunday morning and actually go into the homes and the businesses of our community? I was watching the news this week. I couldn't. It was like a car. I couldn't stop. It was like a car accident. I couldn't stop watching. And my heart was grieved at what our nation is becoming, what it's devolving into, where we will destroy people for power. We have a golden opportunity to provide our country with a counter-narrative to how we should treat one another. And we've got the manual And better than that, we've got the Savior who can help us get there. Because we don't do this in our own strength. If you're struggling with anything that I've said here, I've got good news for you. Jesus knows where you are. He knows how it feels. And he can help you. Jesus is the true and better child who obeyed perfectly his parents. Jesus is the true and better servant who gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the true and better husband who lovingly cares for and nurtures his wife. And Jesus is the true master of the universe who governs with perfect righteousness. And if you need help, you can ask him. He did it. And he can help you with it.